Hi everyone, I'm Stuart Holt. And I'm Elspeth Davis. And we are pleased to announce that this is our... 200th episode! We want to take a moment and thank everyone from all over the world for listening to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. It has been so thrilling to watch our numbers grow. We have a few more episodes happening this summer, and even more exciting lectures, interviews, and events in the works for next season. So please make sure to visit www.metguild.org to, as we like to say, keep up to date on all things opera. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Elspeth Davis. And I'm Stuart Holt. And please enjoy today's episode. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Mad scenes are a common trope in opera and can be seen as far back as the 17th century in operas by Francesco Cavalli. But the most famous by far is in the final act of Lucia de Lammermoor. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Dr. Mark Pottinger leads us through part two of his study day, all about Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor and the fascinating history of madness in opera. So um, we're continuing our discussion of, as we were talking about how different ways to interpret Lucia as one who is seen as a pathetic victim, but with a glorious death. We also looked at the femme fatale and how technology in the 19th century allowed women, the sense of the gender balance to be redefined, where women were seen as sort of disturbing, um, sort of the ideas of, of how we sort of navigate this world of gender. And the, the femme fatale was seen as a symbol of that, sort of uh, troubling the patriarchal control. Or the idea of the ghost bride, the sense of the love, death, and the sense of force being defined from the grave and defining our individual. And how also how Hamlet, um, this idea of someone who seeks revenge due to uh, a ghost who sort of commands upon them. But in both these works, we've looked at how familial duty, how they're both asked by their family to do the thing for the family. And both of them are struggling with that. Of course, Hamlet does it. He kills Claudius, the man who usurped his father's um, bed, his throne. Um, but in a sense, he also killed himself. And with Lucia, as we've mentioned, it's about love in the end. Not necessarily about revenge, but about love. So we'll be continuing that discussion of love here in, in part two. So um, one of the things I wanted to look at, um, one of our first um, uh, examples I have, is from Act Two of Ramando, or Raimondo. Um, Raimondo is our priest, is our uh, individual associated with the family counselor. And he continually is seen, almost like, if you will, like um, um, Friar Lawrence, perhaps in Romeo and Juliet, sort of the confidant, the religious sort of healer, helper, the, uh, the one that one turns to when they have no more answers or questions to, to present. But here, we see sort of a sense of how Donizetti depicts religion and depicts sort of the voice of religion. And those of you who are fans of Verdi will probably hear elements of Don Carlos here, especially the idea of the Grand Inquisitor. 
If you recall from that opera, the, the Grand Inquisitor has this sort of serious basso profundo sound, and almost a point, the voice of God shakes you to your bones. And how is it accompanied? But with double bass and cello in unison, representing this, this, this almost like this creaky wheel that moves, organized and ordered, but at the same time something that is filled with danger and a sense of fear and fright. And we get that same reality of, with Raimondo. It's here in Act Two. It's here where um, in, Enrico, the brother Lucia, fakes a letter that says that uh, Gardo has been, is basically has broken off his de desire for her and is going off with someone else. And he tries to convince uh, Lucia that this is the case. So Lucio then will accept her familial duty and uh, marry Lord Arturo. And it's Raymond she turns to, to, to help her in this struggle. And he basically convinces her that what you need to do is do what your family asks of you. Your mother asks of you. Your mother from the grave asks you to do this. So all this is defined with our voice type, basso profundo, that serious bass, so we know as soon as we hear the music, we know his role. His role is to convince her of the leadership and power of the church. But note how Donizetti sets this. This is not something happy and, and gay and filled with a sense of, of, of hope, but rather it's a sense of order, a sense of control. Also, one of the things that we find in terms of a, of a sonic trope within especially Italian opera in the first half of the 19th century and this is in reality of, of the church. The church had little sort of sway amongst many Italians at this particular time, mainly because of the issues associated with what was happening around the continent with Napoleon. Napoleon, of course, occupied much of Europe in, uh, up to 1815. And then after 1815, we have this movement of Austrian occupation amongst the Italians' desire for unification, sometimes referred to as Sorgimento, this desire to unify under one individual. Victor Emmanuel II actually becomes that individual later on in the 1860s. So in this time, the 1830s, this is a time where people are second-guessing these institutions of the past that went along with the world of Napoleon, went along with this reality of occupation with the Austrians. And so the sense of, for many people, they can't trust the church. And this is sort of reflected in the music. So listen for the sound of the sense of um, Remember our omniscient narrator, our orchestra, listen for how we are to understand the voice of Raymond. Often the sound of the church is defined in counterpoint or the sense of this idea where various lines are combined to create the sense almost of a sense of a, of a network of ideas that seems to suggest almost like a web, uh, sort of a, a sense of, of, of many layered um, ideas happening at once. Silenzio, 
So moving on from, from the first part of our act two to the last part, to the famous sextet scene, this wonderful moment when she gives in, Lucia gives in, and signs the marriage contract for Arturo, believing that Edgardo truly doesn't love her anymore. He's been, she's been convinced by Raimondo uh, now that um, he's given up on their love. So she signs the contract, and feeling, though, what, by signing this, she's really signing away her life. And just at that moment, we have Edgardo burst into the church. And the family of, of course, Arturo, which is going to save the Ashtons from ruin. And of course, there we have the Ashtons. So we have these two families there at this church to celebrate a wedding. And here comes the former lover, Edgardo, and basically says to, you know, this is my bride. But then they realize, um, you know, all the, the situation here that she did sign it. And of course, this forces him in a sense of just rage. He takes the ring from her and um, basically throws his ring, um, uh, her ring that she gave him, throws it at her. And in the opera and in the libretto by Salvador Camarano, he gives us a sense of what's happening to Uchiha and something we'll look at more in terms of the sense of madness. But you notice in, the, in, the, um, in this opera, 
right here when everyone is singing in the sextet, they're all singing the same thing. So this is Enrico, the brother, who feels like, what is she doing? She's going to ruin everything. And you have um, uh, Lord Arturo, who's also like, this is my bride. What's going on here? Then you have Elisa, the, the, um, the, uh, the handmaiden of Lucia. She's also singing this. Then you also have the priest also saying the same thing. And then a chorus of people who are there at the church. What are they all saying? Like a withered rose, she hovers between death and life. They all see that she's starting to waver. She's now, they're now seeing that she's unbalanced. They're now seeing that uh, she, she's obviously not going to survive. Looking at her, she seems like she's trembling. And this is exactly what it says in the libretto. She starts to shake. She starts to shake to such a degree people start going uh, away from this motion of anger, revenge, and a sense of what's going on, especially with Edgardo seeing like the sense of loss. But they all respond in the same way, looking at Lucia. Oh my gosh, she's not doing well. And Lucia says, I hope that terror would cut short my life, but death will not help me. I must live on in anguish. The veil fell from my eyes. I was betrayed by earth and heaven. I would weep, but I cannot. Even tears have forsaken me. That's what she says. Everyone else around her, like a withered rose, she hovers between death and life. So there's a sense where everyone's diagnosing her. So notice how Donizetti sets this sense where you see one thing, but you hear another. You could imagine the scene would be in terms of a, of a wedding where it's been crashed. But how he sets the music sort of puts you off. It's like he's not responding in a way that you would, sort of this you know, cataclysmic moment within a wedding. But rather, we have the sense everyone sort of fragile.
So as you know, what follows in this next act, as we move into act three, is the mad aria. And the, everything is sort of setting us up to that. So as you know, in the interim, she's, she marries, and then um, on their wedding night, where everyone is partying, waiting for this, this coupleation between this, uh, the, the two up in the, in the bridal suite, um, she kills him. And have we, at the end, we have her come um, in her blood-soaked wedding dress down to, um, down, to the, uh, down to the wedding party. Now, as I mentioned before, um, Donizetti set this scene, um, this mad aria where she's come blood-soaked and uh, carrying the knife, the very thing that she used to kill Arturo, um, to this gleeful, happy wedding party. And he uses the glass harmonica. Now, a little something about the glass harmonica. Now, originally composed, as I mentioned, the glass harmonica, the opening of the aria from Act Three reflects an eerie gleefulness in Lucia, giving the audience a sense of her internal state. Although the 1835 premiere, as we talked about, performance of the opera used a flute, presumably because no glass harmonica could be found in Naples beyond the one of the guy at the, the theater, the glass harmonica invented by the American polymath Benjamin Franklin in 1761 was an instrument well associated with psychic energy and the forces of the beyond, championed by the likes of Mozart and Benjamin Franklin himself. In its heyday, which is the late 18th century, the glass harmonica was also the object of considerable trepidation. In the 18th century, music emanating from the glass harmonica was regarded by some as causing nervous stimulation that could lead to a range of maladies. The 18th century glass harmonica player and composer, Karl Leopold Rolig, stated that the instrument could, quote, make women faint, send a dog into convulsions, make a sleeping girl wake screaming through a chord of the diminished seventh, and even cause the death of one very young. So this is the composer, um, you know, perhaps there's a little bit of, of showmanship, but in any case, there was a sense of trepidation with this instrument. And medical professionals even warned of possible ill effects, including muscle tremors, prolonged shaking of the nerves, fainting cramps, fainting, cramps, swelling, paralysis, and seeing ghosts. All this associated with the glass harmonica. You might ask yourself, why? Well, here's uh, just a little um, rendition of the glass harmonica. What's also interesting is that, you know, this, this timbre of this instrument, how it's defining itself physically upon the body. And it's the fact that there's a sense that the supernatural's opened up. There's a sense we don't know, because we don't see the sound source, like a, an aberration, as, as if the entire space is opened up. A world of the beyond, the world of the unseen, has now made itself known sonically. And so the use of the glass harmonica here by Donizetti was particularly related to that world of madness, to the world of the supernatural. And keep in mind, we hear what she hears. The people on stage, the chorus, which frames her, they all look at her and it's like, oh my gosh, look at this woman. That's what they see. 
and that what they what she sings is what they hear but we in the in the audience hear what she hears so we hear the glass harmonica as she hears the glass harmonica and so she becomes as you notice from the we'll see also in the scene as soon as she enters in Raymond says look she's like a ghost this idea that she becomes just like us she becomes basically a miserver to this very reality. She becomes outside of her body and hears what we hear in the, or in, in the audience. So this idea of diegetic, this, uh, this sound world of the opera. So the sound world of the, that the chorus hears is hearing this woman singing these notes in this blood-soaked um, um, dress. But we as the audience know, as she's singing those notes, we also hear in the orchestra what she's thinking and what she's sort of um, hearing here in her, in her own ear. So we're hearing what she hears. And so this idea of diagnosing her, sorry, rationalizing her illness, we're able to understand why she is mad and what she responds to. But the people on stage totally perceive her as simply the sounds that she sings. So in this scene, we, we have Natalie Desay um, performing in the mad aria, but it's done with the flute.
music that follows right after that scene is the music with the love duet, where they say, where she says, on the water, the murmurs, write me a letter. Remember that, that from Act Two? So um, we have right there that particular moment, as we're going to hear it now in Anna Netrebko's version of the same scene, but now with the glass harmonica. So note the change in timbre. Now this was, as I mentioned, Donna Zetsky's original intention was the use of this instrument laden with these ideas of the supernatural, of madness, and of airiness. And once again, this is the sound world that we hear, that Lucia hears. So by helping, and, and if, you, if you recall other mad scenes in other operas, you start to realize that never before have we seen madness like this. Not only is she bloody, not only does she kill, but the fact that we hear what she hears, rather than the sense of the music just accompanies this woman walking on the stage. We hear the very sounds that she hears, and everyone else simply sort of hears this woman singing um, these notes, these words, and these ideas about Agarda. So it's a fascinating way to sort of frame this mental illness, and one we have never seen before, and perhaps one of the reasons why this is such a, a central moment within the work, where it continues to speak to how we sort of perceive the mental illness.
So we'll be talking a little bit more about um, the idea of madness in this work, but want to um, end up with by discussing um, one of the final scenes, which I think is one of the most beautiful arias that we have, which is Edgardo. And as I mentioned, when this uh, opera was performed for the first time, it was the mad scene that people discounted, but it was the final number of the opera. Some people prefer it to end right there with Lucia, but the reality is, is that when Edgardo finds out, like our Hamlet perhaps, when, when Hamlet finds out about Ophelia, his response is one of just complete devastation, and he has no other recourse but to take his own life. And how he decides upon that, and how he rationalizes that, that's very much defined within our lyric tenor, where he becomes more bold and more defining, more dramatic tenor, world-weary in terms of his reality, than when he started at the, at the start of the opera. So he is sort of changed dynamically into this world-weary figure, a dramatic tenor by the end of, of the opera. But once again, this is in that 6-8 meter that we had before at the fountain. So this idea of the fountain, love, death, the idea where in death one can find hope and love. We find the same thing with Agardo. He feels by taking his own life, he will be with Lucia. And same thing with Lucia, following the ghost, she's happy at that fountain. And you hear it in her aria here where she's talking about Agardo's voice. I hear you. I hear you in the death of this fountain. I hear you. In, you know, in the story of this ghost, you're in there. My hope is found in you. So this love death, the idea of the fountain, the idea of love that's, that's consummated there at that fountain, we hear it, of course, in her mad aria, but also um, here with, um, with, um, uh, with Edgardo. So let's take a look at this, um, this final aria. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
it's, it's fascinating also uh, comparing the mad scene, of course, of Lucia and everyone calling you know, Edgardo mad at this point, and everyone's rumbling like they did with Lucia in her mad scene. As it, as it continues, people are like responding, what's going on? What is she thinking? What is she doing? This mad woman, she's in love. No one sees it. They just see a mad woman covered in blood. And Edgardo, what's this madman doing? He's taking his own life. He's in love. So, you know, as we talked at the start in terms of all these different interpretations, I see this opera as a love story. And it ends happily. Even though we begin with this ombra shadowy funeral march at the beginning of our opera, it proceeds to a point of telling us a love story between two people who are being forced apart by what? Familial duty. And, but they decide upon love in the end. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to detail the story, which I think is an archetype to, I think, many stories as we looked at with Hamlet. So we're going to look at sort of madness in the 19th century. Now, this is going to some places, perhaps, that uh, might be a little uncomfortable. But it sort of reveals some of the realities happening um, in this period when this opera was written. And also, why in so many bel canto operas the women go mad? So as many scholars have shown, regardless of its popularity today, the mad scene of Lucia was not popular in the first two decades after the premiere of 1835. In fact, audiences, critics, and publishers of opera selections for the, for the salon preferred the final scene of the opera when Edgardo kills himself upon hearing the news of Lucia's death. As witnessed here in a review article from Il Figaro of, a third of 3 June 1837 performance at the Teatro Re in Milan, two years after the first performance in Naples, the mad scene is absent from the critics' re report. He writes, in our opinion, the pieces that merit further attention are the duet that closes the first part of Act One, the Largo from the imposing finale of the same act, and the tenors, Grand Cena et Aria Finale, end of review. Equally so, after performance two years later, in 1839, at La Scala, a critic declares, quote, with Lucia de Lammermoor, Donizetti has given Italy a masterpiece. Listen to the tender duet between Lucia and the sire of Ravenswood. Listen to the splendid pomp of the finale, declared, not without reason, a masterpiece, whose largo is dominated by a tasteful motive, unfolded and developed with profound mastery. One critic even points out, after an evening performance on 23 June 1839 at the northern Italian city of Reggio Emilia, in this score, quote, in this score, the protagonist has a long and exhausting part made still more uncomfortable by that strange contrivance of librettists, who, true to form, want to imitate others and make all their poor prima donnas mad. For an actor, all this transporting oneself one of one, out of one's senses, this pretending to see faraway people and things, is the most tiresome of tasks. So the apparent snub of this scene by audiences and critics alike is made even more surprising. Due to the sheer number of Italian operas at the same time, that present women succumbing to madness, such as Vincenzo Bellini's Il Prata of 1827, Donizetti's own Anna Bellina of 1830, Bellini's La Sanambula of 1831, and E. Piratani of 1835. All these operas, this is around the same time, were being performed throughout Italy at, at, that, at the same time as, as um, Lucia. Mad women seem to be everywhere which makes the, the dismissal of, Paris, of Lucia's mad scene by early opera audiences even more surprising. <laughs> so you see this layering of just mad women everywhere throughout the 1830s in these operas. So you know, there, was, there was definitely a sense that we don't hate, we don't like mad scenes. They obviously like mad scenes because there's in all these operas. But there's something about Lucia's mad scene 
that people didn't like. So why then did audiences dismiss this so-called mad scene when it first premiered? Were audience members just tired of seeing mad women? Possibly. And for that matter, how did audiences see hysteria, or better yet, hear hysteria in the early 19th century? And did such factors come to define the reception of Lucia's madness in the early decades following the premiere? To get at these questions, let us first look at the definition and image of hysteria as put forth by the scientific community that was prevalent in the 1830s and 40s throughout Europe. Although it might seem strange to engage the world of science to understand madness within a mid-19th century bel canto opera, it must be remembered that here, in the early 19th century, the worlds of art and of science were invariably intertwined to divine a dramatic truth, as in opera, or a veritable truth of natural phenomena, as in science. Indeed, in the 19th century, the natural sciences took on a strong theatrical component, especially within the salons of the social elite and the public lecture halls of the university. To know science was to perform science in public. All such presentations were well rehearsed, to be sure, in order to excite at the right moment, instantly and spontaneously, the populace and the wonders of the natural world, making scientists celebrities, virtuosos in the art of nature. There is, of course, well-known examples, uh, such as Alessandra Volta's um, command over electricity with the demonstration of his voltaic pile to Napoleon and his advisors in 1801, or the Dane um, Hans Christian Orsted and his discovery of the magnetic properties of an electric current as prepared for a public lecture. But for our discussion here, the work of René Leinec, the inventor of the stethoscope and its application to the active listening of disease, is more instructive to our understanding of the sound and subsequent hearing of mental illness as found in Lucia, but also to the performative aspect of scientific truth that was suspected at the time. Invented in 1816, the stethoscope was seen by medical professionals and the public alike as an instrument to perceive the inner realities of the body by listening deeply and attentively, then decoding such sounds as reflective of a simple ailment or disease. Demonstrated widely with participants young and old in salons and in public meeting rooms by the lay and medical professionals alike, the stethoscope became so popular that it was later seen as a de facto symbol of medical knowledge throughout the latter part of the 19th century. And even in our own day, when you see a medical professional, they are invariably wearing a stethoscope. Even though we have EKG and other forms, the stethoscope is often that symbol, a proven accessory to their medical dress known by all. The stethoscope, of course, was not simply a party favor passed around at friendly gatherings or as a costume accessory but was used in Leonek's diagnostic method of immediate auscultation, the listening to and analysis of the sounds of the body via listening device. As indicated in his 1819 treatise on auscultation, Leonek detects the phenomenon of metallic tinkling emanating from the chest of a sufferer of tuberculosis, which he likens to a sort of tinkling like that of a small bell or glass that is finishing its resounding and as the quote, vibration of metallic cord touched by the finger. So he actually, um, he translates this sound. And so he sees the body as an instrument, a sounding body to notate its sound. This is the sound of illness, that a doctor would diagnose these sounds, hear critically these sounds, and then be able to understand illness. So you can see sort of the ramifications here towards music, especially when you put illness on stage when this treatise is well known at this time, listening diagnostically 
to pain. Perhaps this is akin to our glass harmonica, showing Donizetti's knowledgeable intent for its use in Lucia's final aria, and only here in the final stages of the disease. To return to our case study of Lucia then, the sound of mental illness as projected by the voice of Lucia and the orchestra, reflective of the sounds rattling in her mind, is what individuals heard in the opera hall. Like the stethoscope, an instrument passed around in salons as a curiosity and in the medical community as a necessity to deciphering the inner sounds of a patient. Hearing was certainly now a more pronounced activity to understand the inner world of the afflicted. As Marianne Smart, a colleague, has argued in an article, The Silencing of Lucia, the mad scene's coloratura stands out as unusual. Its melismas, both more frequent and more elaborate than those used in saner moments in the opera. So it's, it's weird that we have this work that seems to be not as sort of um, uh, mad as you would expect. As, as in addition, the use of the orchestra alone to serve as the internal projection of Lucia's thoughts throughout her final aria, recalling the music from Acts 1 and Acts 2, which Lucia responds to vocally as well as physically, helps the audience to further comprehend Lucia's confused state of mind. But once again, it is the audiences, the audience that hears these musings of a hysteric and hence are able to comprehend her behavior. Like the use of the stethoscope, the raging of disease are made logical and understood by deeply listening, leading one to properly diagnose the afflicted as mad. Equal to the sound of illness, there is also the look of illness as well. And here we can finally turn to the text here of Marshall Hall. Marshall Hall, a very well-known um, individual within the world of medical science and hysteria. Here we'll look at the compare the look of madness in Lucia as that to that found in contemporary text on female hysteria. It must be noted here that both women and men were seen to suffer from hysteria. Though it was not often called hysteria in men, but rather hypochondria, a disease caused by, quote, sexual deprivation. Interestingly enough, marriage was seen as the ultimate cure for both men and women suffering from the symptoms of the disease. Marriage is not only the prescribed medical cure to hysteria, but also the dramatic impetus for the entire opera. In the, in the Chita Lamamore, marriage is the linchpin to both the dramatic action of the opera, but also Lucia's state of mind. It is in marriage that Lucia is defined. As a wife, she is valuable to, valuable to her brother, her lover, and to herself. She is a healthy, whole person, and the world in which she lives, 18th century Scotland, is made to appear that without such normalcy, all lives meet tragic ends. With the murder of her husband, however, Lucia circumvents that definition of herself and becomes no longer a part of the world of the sane and mainstream society, but a diseased woman showing the outward signs of death. So as we saw, Marshall Hall was an English physician and physiologist, a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and head physician at the Nottingham Journal Hospital who explored the, um, the reflex arc as defined by the spinal cord and its connection to the medulla oblongata of the brain. So he was dealing with reflexes. Hall was also instrumental in defining the procedure for cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, as well as the ethical treatment of animals for experimentation. In addition, as an aside, but also a treatment to his political interests, Marshall Hall was a devout abolitionist, writing a famed book in 1854, The Two-Fold Slavery of the United States, with a project of self-emancipation. So you see that this is not just some whack job, right? This is a real doctor understood in the medical world and someone who was very serious about what he did. You can imagine going to places where it seems like it, it goes into sort of uh, um, immoral areas. Um, but this is men's science 
looking at women, to be, to be clear. And all our authors are men. As we will now explore, these same st uh, stages of the disease are articulated in the libretto of the work and marked by the music of the opera, directly diagnosing the affection of Lucia and thus allowing the audience to witness the various stages of the disease from the early mild symptoms in Act One to an inveterate condition in death in Act Three. Beginning with the mild stage of the disease, in the first act of the opera, the trembling brought on by Lucia's agitated state and the terrible hallucination she describes to her handmaiden, Elisa, are clear symptoms of an early evident instability. When Lucia enters the stage at the beginning of Act Two, summoned by her brother Enrico, the stage directions in libretto draw attention to what might be called Lucia's prehysterical condition, where, quoting the libretto, the pallor of her face, her bewildered gaze, everything about her points to the afflictions she suffers and to the first symptoms of a mental derangement, coming directly from the libretto. During the ensuing dialogue with her brother, Lucia suffers a, a succession of shocks and is seized by cardiac palpitations. But it is during the finale of second act, just after having signed the nuptial contract, that she imagines herself to be dying or fainting before finally losing consciousness. So she, she passes out at the end of Act Two, according to our libretto. Parsed according to Hall's system, this would be the beginning of the severe stage of the hysterical attack. In the final act, Donizetti's heroine, after murdering her husband, lurches from one hallucination to another. First, she believes she sees Edgardo, then the ghost, who separates her from Edgardo and senses the presence of enemies who want to destroy her, the desires for marital bliss with Edgardo. Then, believing herself safe with her lover, she gives herself up to, quote, pleasant hallucinations, directly from, from our um, libretto. Her idealized fantasy of her marriage to Edgardo is a floral Eden, causes her to tremble with joy. The idol is then shattered by her brother's sudden arrival on stage, triggering a new set of hallucinations in which Lucia sees Edgardo stomping on the wedding ring and cursing her. These are all things that are articulated directly in the libretto and we hear in the music. She finally is taken off to her bedroom where she quickly succumbs to the final stage of the disease in the final scene. Following into a state of muteness where only moans and articulate mumblings of Edgardo's name can be heard, presumably lockjaw has set in and the muscles have contracted, signs of the inveterate stage and death. So what we find in the libretto details exactly some of the stages that we see in Marshall Hall, where the sense where the body is starting to shut down and to a point where death is inevitable. Now what audience members in Naples, and getting perhaps to your uh, question, for that matter, all of Italy, have recognized the signs of hysteria as expressed in Hall, and determined that indeed it is hysteria that afflicts Lucia. I argue that yes. Hysteria was not a distant disease in some distant locale, but was readily seen and heard in all major cities throughout Italy. Women suffering from hysteria could be found in nearby asylums and became daily engagements for paid observers. In fact, the practice of visiting on Sundays, the local asylum by, bourgeois, uh, by the bourgeois as a spectator, was a common practice dating from the late 18th century. These houses would receive the rich as a way of gaining support for their services and help to better understand the conditions of the poor. This was entertainment, or at best, observed education for those who desired a deeper understanding of what defined civility in society. For madness was seen as brought on by the environment, a symptomatic response to poor living, thus morally instructive, or in our case, as alluded to earlier, someone who avoids marriage. 
You notice at the end, of, you know, when Lucia appears, you know, she killed someone, but no one tackles her. No one like says, "Oi, this is what you just did is murder." They just allow her to roam freely. This is part of that sense of this new form of treatment to the mentally ill. You allow them, you calm them down, so they're able to then perceive their own reality. So you see how much this opera is revealing itself associated with the medical science of the time, the understanding of mental illness. And once again, she doesn't just snap as in other men, women. She becomes continually diagnosed by everyone throughout the opera to the point that when she does appear, we all understand it and we all want to respond to her in a way that is gentle and not one that completely physically attacks her for her violence that she did. Unlike other displays of madness in opera throughout the first half of the 19th century, Lucia just does not snap and is mad, but as we've seen and see and hear her progress to madness from the very start of the opera, her digression into full hysteria and eventual death was perceived as a possibility from the very beginning. And thus, whenever she's on stage, symptoms of mental illness continue to mount up. Indeed, throughout, from the brother to the priest to her lover and all the members of the Ashton household, everyone is worried about her mental and physical state. The diagnosis of hysteria is continually being performed on Lucia by everyone around her, and thus her climactic appearance on stage is no surprise, as we all saw it coming. But as here, that she truly digresses into the grotesquerie that audience members would have come to witness at mental asylum throughout Europe and would have hoped to have shielded themselves from the potential of such individuals hurting others, let alone themselves. Disheveled, dripping of her victim's blood, convulsing, delusions of grandeur, Lucia no longer becomes a diversion from everyday life, but a reflection of the very souls who fill nearby asylums, reminding one of the potential harm such distressed individuals can inflict upon themselves and to others. So this very reality of this madness made rationalized by her aria, by the people responding in the ways that they did, and everyone sees it coming gradually, gradually to the point of her own death. This is all sort of creates a sense of perhaps this is way too close to what we know of this disease. And what's interesting is that this was the one scene, as I mentioned, that people did not like. But later on in the 19th century, as the mad scene becomes more and more pronounced, longer, more filled with cadences, it no longer represents reality. It's now artistic. It's now representing a world, a hyper world, where it's virtuosic, filled with tons of singing to highlight the singer. It no longer becomes so rationalized as before. Now it becomes entertainment. Now it becomes spectacle. Now it becomes virtuosic, the singer displaying for us. So it steps outside of that which was rationalized before. It's too close to reminding us of what is actually the danger of these individuals. And what we have later in the 9th century, what we have still today, is that sense, that glorification of her death, the sense of this extended aria, this extended sense of her cadenza, highlighting a world that's artistic rather than the world that is rational. Yeah, so it gives you a sense of <laughs> this work, what people thought of it, and sort of the sense of fear about what is this woman doing? This is something that goes way beyond what should happen in a mad scene forces us to listen to the sound of suffering and pain in ways that we never did before. That was Guild lecturer Dr. Mark Pottinger in part two of our study day discussing madness in Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor. To learn more about all things opera, make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on all your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thanks for listening.